0: For a moment and turn with me to Matthew chapter 15, 13. Matthew chapter 13. And the words to which I would call your attention this morning are to be found in verses 15, 53 to 58 of the 13th chapter of Matthew's Gospel. This is the word of the Lord, it is inerrant and infallible in all that it says. Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Let's take a moment now and ask for the Lord's blessing on the preaching of His Word. Heavenly Father, we come to this moment in which we meditate on Your Word and hear it preached. Um, not, not to pat anyone on the back, including the preacher, but to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. Not one of Your people has come here this morning to hear the meanderings of some dolt behind a pulpit. Lord, they have come, Your sheep, to hear from their King. And so we pray and ask, Lord, that You would speak to us by Your Holy Spirit. You have supreme wisdom and You have the words of eternal life. We ask that You would speak them to us now truly so that we might take them in, that we might know newness of life, and that we might walk boldly in a faithless world. A world... That belongs to our King Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Romans chapter 1, verse 18 teaches us that men by nature suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And if you read Romans chapter 1, if you're familiar with it, you know how it goes through this process by which men exchange the truth for lies, and God has given them over to their nature. He has allowed them to believe these lies. He's given them over to this desire of their heart. And, and if you read this passage, Romans one eighteen, they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. This, these men who are with shovels, they're covering up the truth. If you read that, you get the impression that these are men who shake their fists at God. This is... Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, where they, they try to tear God's truth from them. It's like chains. And they say, we don't want to be shackled by your word. We don't want to hear from you. And God, of course, seated in the heavens, laughs at them and holds them in derision. We imagine that these are men with, who have their teeth clenched, their jaw clenched, at God, and they militantly refuse to submit to God. But are there less aggressive ways to suppress the truth? Are there polite ways to suppress the truth of God? I think Matthew chapter 13 shows us at least two ways where men can politely suppress the truth of God in, unright- in unrighteousness. Think about the opening of Matthew chapter 13. Jesus told the parable of the sower and we've mentioned this over and over and what did the people do? Did they ask him, what does this mean? Please, we would have the words of eternal life. No, they said nothing. And so the first way that men suppress the truth in unrighteousness politely is simply by disregarding it. They dismiss it. Okay, that's good for you. That's your truth. You live according to it. That's fine. Just don't bother me. So men can politely suppress the truth in unrighteousness simply by dismissing it. Second, at the end of Matthew 13, you see why Matthew structured perhaps this the way that he did. It is bookended by rejection of Christ. The second rejection, politely as it was, by degrading the teacher. First was by dismissal of the teacher, and second was by degrading the teacher. And so what we're going to see, is very simple in this, these few verses, 53 to 58, the, the point that Matthew makes to us is that those who are offended by Jesus' teaching will not benefit from His power. Those who are offended by Jesus' teaching will not benefit from His power. Now, think just for a moment with me. As you look at verse 53, notice what's happening there. Verse 53, we come out of the parables of Christ and back into the narrative. And some time ago, remember that I told you when you read through Matthew, there are five separate sections where Jesus teaches extensively. And and some people would say that's a reflection on the five books of Moses where we're leaving the third section now and we're going back into the historical narrative and the way that Matthew does this, look at the words that he says there, and when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. That's a signal to you that we're transitioning into a new section of Matthew's Gospel because Matthew says that phrase over and over and over. Matthew explains that Jesus departed from Peter's home earlier in the chapter, in the region of Capernaum. Remember, he was at the top of the Sea of Galilee. And now they're coming down to the south and to the west to Nazareth. And you know why Nazareth is significant, don't you? Because when Joseph returned from Egypt, he found out that an evil ruler, Archelaus, was in the region of Judea, and he was warned by an angel not to lodge there, instead to go to Nazareth. And so that is where he went And that is where the boy Jesus grew up. It was in Nazareth that Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature with God and with man. So Jesus goes home in a sense. Though the parables have ended, we notice Jesus' teaching ministry did not. Notice what he did. Coming to his hometown, or we might translate it homeland or fatherland, He taught them in their synagogue. Now the narrative switching to a new location, Nazareth, is the next location where Jesus will be rejected. We're going to see this in three simple points. We'll see the Word taught, we'll see the Word rejected, and then we'll see the Word departed. The Word taught, verses 53-54, to the Word rejected, and the word departed. Notice, first of all, in the word taught that Jesus continued teaching. This was his pattern. Wherever he went, we find that his ministry starts in Mark 1.15. What was he doing? Preaching. The kingdom is at hand. Repent. Jesus came as a teacher and a preacher. And now when he goes back to his hometown, he doesn't leave off his office. He continues it. Notice where he went in the hometown. He went to the synagogue. This was his pattern. It was a pattern that was adopted by Paul later. Whenever he would enter a new city, where would he go? Into the synagogue. What do you find in the synagogue on a regular basis? Do you think you might find in the synagogue your avowed atheist? Probably not. Do you think you're going to find the Gentile nations there, those who were not the promised people of God? Some Some converted to Judaism. Some were circumcised. Some enjoyed the Passover and went to the synagogue for the teaching. But by and large, what kind of people would he have found here? Religiously minded people. These were the people who probably were teaching their sons and daughters the word of God, maybe. So these were not atheists. They're not avowed atheists. They're not religiously insensitive. These are religiously minded people. And we notice the effect that Jesus' teaching had on them there. Verse 54 what happened? They were astonished. They were astonished. The people were amazed by the teaching of Jesus. It wasn't the kind of teaching where they they were struggling to follow him. Literally, the word means to strike out of one's senses. In some contexts, it would be used to start a fire. You think of taking a flint and steel and you strike that flint and you get the sparks going and you do it over and over and over and over until your kindling catches and you then nurture that little wisp of flame there until it becomes a fire. This is the effect that Jesus' teaching was having upon them. It was striking. It was astonishing. It had an amazing effect upon them. And we would expect it to do so, thinking of who this was. It was the Christ. And so simply as we begin here under this first point, just note that the incarnate Christ was a teacher and preacher. His mission was not necessarily to give people a certain religious experience. It was to impart knowledge. It was to impart wisdom. It was to reconcile the people of God with the truth of God so that they could live in a way that honored God in this life. Jesus' God-ordained role was to serve as a prophet. Now, this is important. As a prophet in a long line of what? Prophets. They had had a 400-year silence before John the Baptist came on the scene. And now what happens? The prophetic ministry resumes amongst the people of God. That is an important connection. Christ's God-ordained role was to reveal the will of God for the salvation of His people. He did that through preaching and teaching. So in your life, the role that Jesus plays is to teach you and me the path of redemption. This is His role: to teach us the way of redemption by faith in His atoning sacrifice, and to, sacrifice, to sanctify us by His Spirit, who leads us what? In the paths of righteousness. This is His role. And as you live with Christ then, by the Holy Spirit, what do you find? You learn more and more. But it doesn't just reside in you as a head knowledge. Remember we in the parable from before, those who, who have the Spirit, what do they do? They bring out of their treasures new things and old things. You're casting it about. You learn, you teach. You learn, you teach. You live according to this truth. Sanctification, then, by the Spirit is about receiving and submitting to Christ's teaching. But astonishment, amazement wasn't the only thing that affected the people. It wasn't the only response, was it? The second thing that we notice about this text is that the word was rejected. The word was rejected. I want you to notice as you look back at the passage, just notice how John puts this all, I'm sorry, how Matthew puts this all together. Verse 54, they were astonished, and that is bookended by another response in verse 57, and they took offense at him. They were astonished, and they took offense at him. Amazement turned to scandal. Literally, the Greek word there is scandal. They were scandalized by the teaching of Christ. Now, now that to be knocked out of your senses, it takes on a different sort of connotation, doesn't it? It's almost as though Jesus, as he was teaching, was delivering body blow after body blow to the people through what he said. It was a a pearl-clutching moment. You had people saying, wait, repeat that? Wait, what did you say? Say that again? Because as we learned in Matthew chapter 7 at the very end, He did not teach them as one of their scribes. He taught them as one who had authority. Notice what happens in this scene. Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? And there may be a little bit of condescension. Literally the Greek says, where did this one? get this wisdom and this power it's almost as though they don't call him a man where did this guy that guy how did he get this and notice how they go on where did he get this man, this wisdom and these mighty works is not this the carpenter's son i know his daddy And you can sort of hear the whispering and see the scene. Perhaps Jesus took the scroll of Isaiah and he's he's opened it up and he read from the scroll and he began to teach the people from the word of God. And so what happens is one man leans over to his neighbor and he says, where did this guy get this power and wisdom? And he says, I don't know. Isn't this the carpenter's son? You grew up next door to him. He put the hinges on your door. He built the wall in your building, your home. And the murmuring began. Is not this, is not his mother called Mary? We we know where she lives right now. And another one chimes in, he says, well, yeah, and remember his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, Judas. We know those guys. And, and not only that, he's got sisters too. Where then did this man get all these teachings, these things? And you can sort of get the sense of what's going on in the synagogue this particular day as the people had gathered. They politely hear Jesus. And we could go through, and some commentators do, you could go through and you could take each of these five questions and you could say, well look, here's a different way by which men reject the Word of God. He's, he, he doesn't have sufficient learning. He doesn't have sufficient education, as John records, to teach us these things. But I think I think Matthew points us to the main point, which is not what are the questions, but why are they there? What are the people attempting to do? Why are they asking these questions? They're asking these questions to divert themselves from listening to what he is saying. They're not asking, is this true? Is he right? Is this what the Word says? Is this how we are supposed to understand it? Is this how we're supposed to apply the Word? No, there's none of that. All that Matthew records is these, these five questions. Who is this one to say these things to us? The scandal didn't turn into hostility, did it? There's no record of anybody picking up a stone to throw it at Jesus. They did not seek to put him as, at, to death as they did at other times. They simply reasoned within themselves and to one another why they did not have to listen to what he said. Forget it, man. Forget it. Don't you know this guy? even though he taught them as one who had authority and not as their scribes, ultimately they preferred the scribes' teaching to Jesus. And so on the one hand, notice that these questions confirm Jesus' humanity, don't they? These are people who knew his his father Joseph, his earthly father, as it were, who knew his mother, who knew his brothers, who had seen him grow up, his half-brothers, his half-sisters, he, he had grown up among them. And so on the one hand, uh, these questions, they should put to rest the Roman Catholic insistence on Mary's perpetual virginity. Why? Because in the words of Genesis, she had other sons and daughters. But that's not the real purpose of these questions, is it? That's not why they asked This is not to affirm for you that Jesus was a real man. Why? Because it's bookended by these responses, amazement and offense. So what was the purpose of the questions? They diverted the people from thinking about what Jesus said so they could focus on who said it. Anything would do. Notice that Matthew doesn't record what Jesus said, did he? He didn't tell you what the sermon was or the passage that Jesus read. (coughs) Maybe it was Isaiah. That was a favorite. But we don't know. Why doesn't he record it? Well, we, you and I, might get lost critiquing the message and thinking how it might have been adjusted. If he just said this thing right here, they wouldn't have responded that way. That's what we do. Instead, all that Matthew leaves us with is to consider that Jesus was offensive. Why was Jesus offensive? You could probably think of a whole long list of things to to say about why Jesus was offensive. Let me give you just two. One... God ordained Jesus to be an offense. Did you know that? God ordained His Son to be an offense. I want you to take your Bible, and I want you to turn over with me to Isaiah chapter 8. There are several places that we could get this in Isaiah. I'm going to read beginning in verse 11. God ordained that Jesus would be offensive. Isaiah 8 11. For the Lord spoke thus to me with His strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, Him you shall honor as holy. Let Him be your fear, and let Him be your dread. So God here is addressing Isaiah, and He's saying to him, you say what I tell you to say, no more, no less. Verse 14, and he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. You see what the text is saying there then. Who is the he that he's referring to? It's Christ. And what is God saying about the Christ? He will be a rock of offense and a stone of stumbling to whom the religiously minded people, Jerusalem and the house of God. The apostles refer to this often. You can turn over with me to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. You remember, Romans 9 to 11 is where Paul is wrestling through. God's relationship to Israel, why haven't they come to embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ? And he quotes Isaiah here, picking up in verse 30, Romans 9:30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? because they did not pursue it by faith, but as it were, based on works. They have stumbled, look, over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Why was Jesus such an offense? So why do people trip over him Paul will go on to say this many other times Peter quotes it in 1 Peter 2.8 why do people trip over Christ because his teaching requires them to abandon any idea of self righteousness isn't that what Paul said We want a righteousness that comes by the law. I want, by nature, to be able to say, look what I did. And when you preach the gospel, it says to men, there is nothing that you have that God wants. You are sanctified by Christ alone, through faith alone, by grace alone. So, God ordained Jesus to be an offense, not because he walked around slapping ladies in the face, simply by teaching the truth. A second reason the Spirit was not present. The Spirit was not present. Put simply, Where the Spirit of Christ, think carefully with me about this, where the Spirit of Christ is not present with the teaching of Christ, there will be scandal. Does that make sense? The Spirit of Christ plus the Word of Christ equals conversion and sanctification. The Word of Christ without the Spirit of Christ equals scandal and offense. Now, for you and me, this is on the one hand a comfort and it's a challenge. It's a comfort in this way, that if you teach the Word and people find you offensive, don't worry. They hated Jesus before they hated you, and you and I are not better than our master, are we? But it's also a challenge. If you seek to live a life that is totally free from offense, then you won't walk faithfully with Christ. Now, this does not mean you go around slapping ladies on the face. But it does mean that your fear of the Lord must be greater than your fear of man. Or you will always be challenged in your faithfulness to Christ. If you are a man-pleaser and your desire is always to have people like you, then you won't walk faithfully with Christ. Why can we say this? Because in Genesis chapter 3, remember that God said He would set what warfare animosity hatred between the sons of the devil and the sons of God there's nothing that you and I can do about that and the more that you preach Christ and the more overt you are in your life about giving credit to Christ the more people are going to find you offensive And and think about this. You don't even have to preach him. Going all the way back to Genesis chapter 4, why did Cain find offense with Abel? Because Abel was preaching to him? No. Simply because uh, Abel was doing all he could to live faithfully for the Lord. And that witness, that witness churned within him against his brother, and he put him to death. You don't have to go out of your way to be offensive to a fallen culture. All you have to do is open the word and explain it. To teach the scriptures cover to cover is to insist that men, women, and children engage in a radical, world shifting adjustment of attitude and behavior. Do this, and you are guaranteed to offend. So you cannot choose to be offensive. You can only choose to be offensive or to be faithful. Lastly, thirdly, we've seen the Word taught. We've seen the Word rejected. And lastly, we see the Word departed. Turn back with me to Matthew chapter 13. How does Jesus respond? Well, he didn't go in a corner and cry. Jesus said to them, verse 57, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Matthew makes a simple point here. That those who refuse Jesus' teaching refuse Jesus. You can't have the man as a sacrifice, an atonement, a lamb, without accepting his teaching. It seems like this would really put out of sorts that old controversy, that lordship controversy. You You can come to Christ as a savior and then somewhere down the line you can accept him as a king. But I want you to notice again what Matthew is doing here in the text. Go Look at verse 57 again. A prophet is not without honor except where? In his hometown. Again, this book ends the passage, doesn't it? Jesus went to his hometown and now Matthew draws your attention back to that. Where is he? He's in his hometown. It could also be translated homeland or his fatherland. Why is that important? Well, because Jesus' rejection is connected to Israel's history. He gives us this proverbial statement. A prophet is not without honor except in his homeland or his hometown. That's not from Scripture. Jesus utters it in the moment. But what we see is that the fate of faithful prophets has been death at the hands of God's people. This is always how it has been. Jesus is saying, I am a prophet of God, and I walk in a long line of prophets of God. And guess what? Is it a surprise that I suffer the same fate as the prophets of God? They have come to you preaching the word, you've rejected the word, and you've killed the prophets. In his prophetic office, Jesus joined a long line of prophets who were reviled by the Israelites. Turn to Matthew chapter 23, verse 30. Jesus will bring this back home again in Matthew 23, beginning verse 29. And this was. Surely not offensive. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous. You see what he's accusing them thereof. You you guys who say that you love the law of God, you kill the spokesman of God. Verse thirty, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers, How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. What is Jesus saying? This generation of men hate the Word of God and you've always been killers of the prophets. They come to you inviting you to repent, to know the blessing of God, and what do you do? Well, what did they do to Moses? How dare you preach to us? You're no better than us. Well, go stand outside your tent and we'll find out. Jezebel pursued Elijah to kill him. They lowered Jeremiah into a pit so that they had no chance of hearing what he said anymore. And Jesus is saying, and Matthew is pointing out to you that Jesus is being treated the same as every other prophet. Rejected. We also see that Jesus' rejection resulted in diminished power. Verse 58. And He did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Now, we could look at this and we say, well, how how exactly does that work? Does this mean that, that they somehow diminished the power of Christ? Was He not able to do it? No, this was not a diminishment of power in Christ, it was diminishing the power amongst the people. Jesus didn't fret or sweat drops of blood over this rejection. He simply moved on. And Matthew would have us notice the emphasis on faith. Matthew connects the power of Christ to faith in Christ. If you Trust Him if you believe. Faith connects you to the power of Jesus Christ. Rejection of Christ disconnects you from the power of Christ. Matthew Henry says, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. But then it is to everyone that believe, Romans 1.16. So that if mighty works be not wrought in us, notice, if mighty works be not wrought in us, It is not for want of power or grace in Christ, but for want of faith in us. By grace you are saved. And that is a mighty work. But it is through faith. To disbelieve disconnects you from Christ. To reject Him is to reject His benefits, is to reject His power. In this moment, the faithless Nazarenes experienced a temporal illustration of the eternal judgment. Then, Christ will say to those who denied Him in this life, Depart from me. I never knew you. And so the challenge to you and me is to go on examining ourselves to ensure we accept the whole Christ, the Redeemer, and the Sanctifier. The sincere believer, what does he do? He sits at the feet of Christ, soaking in His Word and submitting to every bit of it. But those who are offended by Jesus' teaching, Matthew shows us, will not benefit from His power. I think Matthew 13 may illustrate two of the politest rejections of Christ recorded in the Scriptures. The first rejection was one of simple indifference. They listened to what he said but immediately disregarded it. The second rejection was one of degradation. Although the religious crowd never took up stones to kill him, they worked together to discredit him. Although the in a desperate attempt to subvert what he said, they found ways to discredit him as a speaker. And as you do gospel ministry, you'll often find these two kinds of rejection. It's not going to be men shaking their fists at you. It's just going to be men saying, that's nice. Thank you for the nice message. On the other hand, you'll find those who hate you, who hate what you have to say, and attack you or slander you as an individual. But remember, their beef is not with you. It's with the Word of God. When it is preached, in its fullness, it arouses the natural hatred that lies within the heart of the unregenerate man. Now, this is why they rejected the prophets. This is why they rejected Christ. And this is why those who are destined for damnation will continue to reject the whole counsel of God's Word, desiring instead the pursuit of their own glory. But don't Despair. The same word is treated with indifference by some and degradation by others. That same word, listen, is the source of true joy to the people of God. Just as God encouraged Elijah, do you remember how? He encouraged Elijah in that moment that he was pursued by Jezebel. He said to him, they haven't all forsaken me, Elijah God reminded him that he maintained a small remnant of faithful people who loved the word of God. And so must we, the church of Christ, take courage in these moments from the sovereignty of God over his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word is perfect. It gives us life. And I and my brothers and sisters, we confess to you that that each of us have read things in Your Word that have caused us scandal. But we thank You that when accompanied by the Holy Spirit, over time, sometimes, in a moment, sometimes, You've enabled us to submit to that Word. Help us, O Father, to remember the example of Christ, to look upon Him, to remember that He too was rejected, to remember also the promise of Your Word that Your Word that goes forth from Your Word does not fail. It's not us, Lord, it's the Word. Therefore, keep us in perfect peace as we speak in your behalf. We pray in the name of our blessed Savior, amen.